Today, we're talking with Hilary Wainwright, who's an academic and activist, and she's editor of Red Pepper magazine, and she's a fellow of the Transnational Institute. Uh, so, hello, Hilary. Hi, um, I do. Thanks for, thanks for interviewing me in this, in this very interesting way. And um, what's your main focus at the moment, and, and why? Well, I've got two main focuses that are slightly, they're not intention, but they are in terms of my time. I mean, initially, my focus, what, when I began the year, my focus was on trying to make concrete this idea of popular democratic control of public industries. So taking the challenge of John McDonnell, which, you know, he's said not only are they going to bring back into public ownership water, railways, post and energy, but also they're going to uh, run, run the public industries in a completely different way from the old, you know, Fabian sort of top-down um, structures. And in particular, he, he said, we really recognize the knowledge of frontline workers and communities, which is really my kind of theme, my theme about the importance of practical knowledge. So I thought, well, I must try and uh, rise to that challenge and show how, what forms of organization can, can, can um, share that knowledge and give it some real power and affect uh, sort of efficacy for the public good. So I was going to, um, I was going to go to um, do some research with the backing of the TNI in Uruguay, where they've brought all the um, infrastructure into public ownership and they're beginning to think about forms of democratization. So I was like working from actual examples. So there, there, there's no real example of democratic public ownership, but at least in Uruguay they're, they're thinking about it. So that was, uh, that's what I embarked on and planned a research, you know, visit with the tribunalists there. And then, um, then I thought, then Brexit, you know, got worse, you know, got worse and worse and the prospects worse and worse. And I, I was sort of trying to persuade the Labour Party. Well, you know, I'm not, I don't have any power, but as a, a journalist and writer and a Labour Party member, trying to persuade um, Corbyn and John McDonnell that actually Labour could lead a process of change in Europe. So they could go beyond, you know, the, the awful choice between a sort of free market Brexit and a neoliberal Europe, EU, and instead sort of project a vision of a, of a democratic socialist Europe. And that, I wrote an article on that in The Guardian that, that had a bit of impact amongst party members, but didn't really influence the leadership, which maybe I, I, I can never do. But then I thought, well, a good example that maybe who's best to have examples would be Portugal, where um, there's an anti-austerity government, left government, sort of that's in the EU, but also very critical of the EU. So in and against, which is a theme I like to pursue. So yeah. I'm going to go there next week to interview people about that experience and then write about that and then try and put it into the debate. So I'm, you know, in a way Brexit has so paralyzed, you know, alternative thinking. So I felt I had to address it head on, but without forgetting work on alternatives that I'm wanting to do. The um, John, John McDonnell also said that they'd double the size of the cooperative sector, which I found really, mm. really yeah. Uh, no, really no, no, I think there's, there's a lot of possibilities 
in his in the well, particularly his because he's the economics, um, you know, shadow minister, but finance. Um, and he really, he, I worked with him at the GLC, and he really gets it. You know, he really gets the importance of a new kind of state that supports grassroots activities rather than presumes that it can do it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel um, we've got to, you know, applies to the people coming to the meeting on the 9th. We've all got to kind of rise to that challenge and, and, and prepare, I mean, hopefully for a change of government and for a government that will be responsive to all the kind of mutual credit participatory democracy ideas that your members and activists are part of. But we can't, you know, we, we can't rely on a change of government though, Kevin, that's a problem. It's, yeah. it's, uh, we have to build something that's going to work, whatever the government really. Yes, yes, though I do think we do need state support, but, but not state management, state kind of facilitation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've got to almost also campaign for a change of government. Yeah. But campaign not just by the normal electoral processes, but with examples that give people confidence that an, an alternative is possible. Yeah. So um so lowimpact.org is an environmental sorry for Keith, keep walking in front of the screen. Um I don't know whether you listen to Radio Four this morning. Behind. Sorry. sorry? Redirect him behind you. Yeah. Yeah. Put him on your shoulders. Anyway, yeah. He just he just loves it when I'm talking to somebody on Zoom. He, he wants to know what's going on. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you listened to Radio Four this morning. We, I mean, we're coming from an ecological perspective, and on on Radio Four this morning there was a there was a very short item which said scientists are now telling us that in a hundred years' time, if current trends continue, there'll be no more insects. Oh yeah, I did, I did hear that in my then, in my dozy state. Yeah, people might think, oh well, so what? Mm. But they're you know, the pollinators, the soil builders, the, the base of the food chain. So from an ecological perspective, it's just terrifying. I mean, if there's no insects, there's probably no humans. Um, and lots of environmental organizations focus on individual actions, which are great, but nowhere near enough in an economy that has to, you know, constantly badger people to consume more and more. Uh, so we, we need sort of wider change, especially in the economy. So I've just, I've just read your book. Um, a new politics from the left, um, oh, and uh, you know about this meeting we're having in March, um, yes. and it's the people building the components of what I guess you could call—I think you did call a mutualized economy, mm. non-extractive economy—and uh, yeah, we're talking about federating this new economy, and there's there's lots in your book that relates to that, and I'd like to talk about some of them. Mm. Um, you mentioned a decentralized. Um, decentralized networked organizations sharing knowledge horizontally mm. um, rather than you know being condensed in giant corporations mm. um, what's your thinking behind that why, why the focus on knowledge when it comes to building a mutualized economy well because i feel that ultimately and here i'd sort of be uh, sympathetic to marx that 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 sort of all value um is the source of human creativity um, and that, um, um, well, not unfortunately, but, but the fact is that in, in our present society, that value is extracted and is um, appropriated and privatized. And it's actually a value which is inherently social. I mean, it's the product of social collaboration. Um, and so I feel that an alternative has got to start from that level. It's got to start from the inside of the production process rather than 
you know, the idea of state control and the idea of state socialism was sort of well intended. It was the idea that, well, the state represents the public through a political process of, you know, elections and so on. Therefore, a social economy must go through the state. But I'd say, well, the problem with that is that the state is not, it's not a knowledgeable, it's not a creative institution. I mean, it can support creativity and it can help um, generate it, but it, it rests, it, it, it's actually a very hierarchical institution, almost inevitably, because it's a, an organization with an overview, you know, so it's looking down and then issuing commands or setting regulation. Now, I'm not denying that we need that for certain purposes. We need it for health and safety on the railways or in an energy um, industry. But it should always be a facilitating or limiting framework with the, the creativity coming from, you know, the, the people. But that creativity, I'm arguing, is not just about science that can be made public and turned into laws that can be easily publicized and centralized. It's actually about people's what I call tacit knowledge, practical knowledge, that isn't necessarily always explicit. You know, I think the best writer on topic was Michael Polanyi. He talked about the things we know but cannot tell, you know, whether it's, you know, designing a, um, an amazing piece of energy conservation machinery or it's um, it's cooking some, some you know. Could you say that name again? Could you say that name again? He's called Michael Polanyi. Polanyi. Oh, Michael Polanyi, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, his brother is more famous, Carl Polanyi, who yeah. wrote the Great Translation book. Yeah. Michael Polanyi is also interesting uh, from this point of view. He wrote this, a book called The Tacit Dimension. And he doesn't counterpose it to science. He actually says that science depends on that tacit dimension, the hunches, the intuitions, you know, the kind of knowledge that you share when you go to the photocopier or, you know, we, we had, it was very important in the women's movement because we had a whole process of, you know, could say it was policymaking, but no conventional policymaker would recognize it. It's, we, we built these consciousness raising groups through which we shared our experiences experiences of unease in our relationships or um, in the way the world treated women. Uh, and we shared, you know, knowledge that was embedded in emotion, in anger, and in daily experience. But out of that came all sorts of new institutions around um, healthcare, around uh, centers for women who were victims of, of male violence, and so on. So, you know, it's really saying we need new forms of organization that can share that knowledge and network forms. I mean, they've, got, they've now become rather trendy and they're more overlaid by the experience of the internet, but actually they preceded the internet and were more to do with, you could say movements, sort of collaborating rather than, you know, simply electing a top hierarchy. They would collaborate across localities or, and also, they, they stressed initiatives like doing something now rather than passing a resolution as to what should be done by a future government. So that's why I think that the sort of 
I wouldn't get, I wouldn't fetishize a network. I would say the key principle is collaboration. And how do you see that collaboration? I mean, I've, I've always argued that um, it should be federation rather than consolidated growth of large, in, large units. It should be more, more in line with federation of, and keep the units relatively small. It seems to me like the, the, the co-op itself, the co-op group, if you walk into a co-op store and ask the staff about cooperatives, they don't really even realize that they're working in the cooperative. It's, not, it's just a job for them. It's run yeah. by management. And then you have the co-op bank, which was absorbed into into the corporate sector because it, you know, stumbled. Mm. Uh, but if it was fe a federation of small units, if any one unit fell over, it wouldn't damage the entire network. Yes, I mean, I think I, I to be honest, at the moment, I I wouldn't say I've got like a kind of design scheme. So it's very much experiment and yeah, and learn as we go. So I think some kind of collaborative federation which might lead to new shared institutions like you know the very famous experience of the Mondragon yeah. co-ops I mean I wouldn't fetishize and sort of like romanticize that but there are elements of it I think the, the bank which is an important innovation but that was a shared it was neither centralized nor um, you know big or um, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, but it was a, still a resource. It wasn't that smallness wasn't the key thing. The key thing that was that it was meeting a need shared by all the different members of the federation. So, I mean, I think federation is only one concept in a, a kind of, you could call it a, an eco ecology, a sort of a set of institutions. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned that in your book. I thought that was a really interesting idea to to picture it as a, an ecology, a net of different kinds of organisations just working with each other. Yeah, because you might need a shared bank, you might need shared educational institutions, shared forms of of distribution. You know, so so when thinking about federation, I think be fairly open minded about what kinds of institutions, yeah, rather than just being a federation of 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 one certain kind of organisation. Yeah, there are lots of different kinds of non-extractive um, institutions, including self-employment. Yes. Um, it, but it sounds as though, from what you said, that you agree with the labour theory of value. Um, well, you wouldn't say the whole shebang. I mean, I mean, I'd say I agree with the kind of foundation of it, the idea that value, you know, the source of value is is human creativity. I mean, all the consequent developments around, you know, the relationship between value and I don't, I mean, I don't particularly agree with it. I don't, I mean, there's a lot that goes with that insight about the source of value that that's contentious. Um, but, you know, I think the basic idea that, that human creativity is the source of, of value. I mean, it can't be entirely, again, it's because nature can also be generative. Nature can produce sources of value, as we know. You know, it's there's also an extractive approach to to nature. You know, I mean, yeah. talking earlier about 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 the death of insects through pollution and so on. Well, clearly, bees are creating value. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. You, I don't think you want to re you can't reduce it just to human uh, creativity. It's got to be yeah. human okay. creativity in relation to a 
nature as itself a, a productive creative force yeah 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 um, you, you've said that um, this new mutualized economy could be an alternative to the free market and to the centrally planned command economy. And so this is a genuine question. Why wouldn't a mutualized stroke cooperative economy be free? I mean, today, today's economy, the capitalist why economy... Wouldn't is it, is it, again, why, wouldn't a why wouldn't a mutualized economy be free? Because, um, you know, the, the capitalist economy today is anything but free. The state yeah. gives huge concessions to multinational banks and corporations in return for money and jobs and, and threats to leave. Uh, and it gives them direct subsidies and it doesn't collect tax from them properly. It builds infrastructure for them. It protects their patents. It gives, it gives banks monopoly control of the money supply. It really rolls over, you know, for the, for the corporate sector all the time. It's not a free market. Whereas if it was an entirely mutualized and cooperative market it seems that that would be a free market a true i mean a real a really free market yeah i mean i i i think that um there are a number of issues there i think that there's nothing per se wrong with the, a market you know which is as a means of exchange i mean the problem is the dynamic of the market and what frames the market so in a sense I mean, I don't know if you've read um, a historian, amazing historian called Brodel. Called? Brodel. B-R. Okay. Anyway, he has a whole theory of, um, of the history of capitalism, and he, he distinguished between... How do we spell um, his name again? How do we spell his name? B-R-A-U-D-E-L. I think it's Fernando. I'm not sure. But... Um, Anyway, he had a whole theory of the market and then the anti-market forces of capital, of capitalism. So which was to do with the, the, um, the private ownership of production and then the sort of logic of accumulation that in order to, to survive, you had to grow, companies had to grow mm -hmm. and they, they therefore became competitive with each other to grow at the expense of each other and then they became increasingly oligopolistic and monopolistic mm -hmm. yeah. and he, he considered that to be anti-market yeah. which I agree with but then you've got to think well how do you frame the market in order that it doesn't it doesn't uh, develop that competitive um, oligopolistic tendency so then you need to think about in a way collaboration between collaborators or mutualism between mutuals yeah then it becomes not just about the market but about the social relations that frame the market so um i don't i think the idea of free market isn't an adequate concept because it's partly because uh, as you as you're saying the, the capitalist market with capitalist kind of ownership relations and, and without any um, um, social regulation contend in this anti-market, anti anti-democratic, oligopolistic action. So you need, you need um, to consider in what social context the market is embedded. Mm. So you can't market per se. It's got to be like a capitalist market or a regulated market. I, I suppose. I suppose the reason I say that. 
Yeah, and the, the reason I said that, um, I was involved with the, in a public debate uh, recently organised by our local transition group, and it was, um, is there actually an alternative to capitalism? Should we try and sort of tweak capitalism because there's no alternative, or should we yeah. think about how to replace it? And of course, I was talking about, they asked me to, they asked me to put the replacement position, and I was talking, about, I was talking with somebody who was in the, the pro-capitalist position. And it turned out during the debate that he was involved in community-supported agriculture schemes and community energy schemes. And I said, well, but why are we arguing? <laughs> why are we arguing? That's not, yeah. that's not capitalism. That's, that's very, very collaborative. And I, was, yeah. I, I started talking to a group of libertarians, and they worked in the city, uh, yeah. and in, the bar, in the bar after the debate. And they said, we came specifically to barrack you. Oh, really? <laughs> and... and we ended up actually agreeing with most of what you said because you're because what you're talking about is actually a free market, and so that was the crucial phrase. Free market yeah. was the yeah. thing that didn't scare them, because they yeah. thought, oh, actually, this isn't nothing to do with a centralized centralized control. No, 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 no. I mean, but that's the thing that because maybe the Soviet experience in the Cold War, socialism um, has been sort of in a way hijacked to mean um the centralized uh, yeah. command economy yeah whereas you know, originally socialism was on the same spectrum as yeah. mutually i mean it's just another word can yeah. i it's just on the hot hits amazingly can i just open a window yeah sure sure <laughs> i'm not implying that hackney is some kind of california but it is kind of hot Okay. I, th I think the, prob the, the problem with people on the right, I mean, the problem that the, the, the general problem is that people on the right only see the word socialism as meaning yeah. the, the Soviet style socialism. They don't see any other kind of socialism. So the, the no, use well, of. I think the Cold War, yeah, I think the Cold War is, to, you know, very much um, still a kind of important legacy. Yeah. But I think, I think using that word tends to scare them because they don't understand it. And um, it's uh, so the, the, the kind of market. That's the importance of my book. That's what I was trying to, you know, why I call my book a politics of a new politics, a new politics of the left. I think I wasn't emphatic enough. I mean, I wasn't polemical. I was sort of doing it more to think things through. And I should have been a bit more polemical against the sort of Cold War notions of socialism. Yeah, I think, I think whenever I talk to people who consider themselves on the right, they really don't understand the nuances within the word socialism. They only see one kind of socialism. And so I tend not to use that word because it just scares them. Whereas yeah. mutualism, they may, not, they may not know what it is, but they sort of get a, you know, they, they sort of grasp it and they, and they think, okay, that's not, that's not scary. Yeah, um, and it stops them getting their knickers in a twist, really. Yeah. Whereas, whereas the non-extractive nature of it is is you know pleases the left. The yes. free market, the free market part of it, it pleases the right. And so, yeah. I, and and I, what I wanted to ask you about that. Um, the, the it was right, you know, right there on the cover of your book, politics from the left, which is obviously obviously going to put off people who consider themselves right. They're not even going to consider it. It, it's it's going to be in opposition to them, right? Right from the word go. And I wondered why the why you chose to 
have the word left right there on the cover of your book? Because I suppose I feel that um, the politics of mutualism and um, cooperativism is, you know, did originate on the left and is about the left. And that, that um, I mean, we need to be an open left, you know, so we're not defining ourselves necessarily in a way that include people who have identified with the right. But I think we, we, we do come from a tradition, you know, which I suppose this goes back to, I think the left right distinction goes back to the, the French revolution. Yeah. Who, the, who was on different sides of the French revolution. And so the left is an emancipatory tradition um, but you know it's been it's been distorted and hijacked. But you know, so I was kind of using the word left to appeal to a kind of people who identify with the left and identified with some. I've been searching for a, a new left really since probably 1968. Mm. Um, it, but I mean, I think you're right that I could have. You know, maybe I'm sort of thinking about whether to do another ver another edition. And maybe that one could be called something, I don't know, I, I'd take ideas from people, but you know, maybe... maybe the, the, a new the, politics the, for everybody. Or a new, uh, the politics of mutualism or something. Yeah. Have you come across Kevin Carson? Um, yes, in the United States. He's, uh, yeah, that's right. He's, uh, he wrote this. In California. Studies in mutualist... Um, oh, okay. I'm studying. Very, very interesting. Um, you know, um, I think what I heard, what I got, um, I think was in California. Some friends recommended him, and and um, they they lent me a book he'd done, which sort of brings together a lot of different examples of the mutual economy in the. Oh, US. was this? Was that? Was that this one? Organization theory. Um, it might have been. But clearly, I must study him if I do any other further edition or something. His um, his strapline is or his, his slogan is um, free market anti capitalism. Oh right, okay. Does <laughs> he does sort of... he dwell on the knowledge issue? I beg your pardon. Does he look at the knowledge question? Um, not that I can remember. I haven't come across anything specifically on it. His 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 approach is. Um, well, he certainly catches people's attention, I think, when he says uh, free market anti-capitalism, because mm. people assume that capitalists, capitalism is all about free market. Well, of course, it mm. absolutely isn't. Mm. Um, and um, so, yeah, he's, he, his, his approach is sort of neither left nor right. And mm. he doesn't, really doesn't see the solution as coming from the state because he thinks no. that the state is in bed with the corporate sector. Well, it is, yeah, it is. But I mean, it is also where, you know, democracy was kind of fashioned. I mean, it's been, it's been hijacked by the corporate sector. But, you know, in a way, if you think about elections and the right to vote, you know, no, no taxation without representation. It was a struggle over the state. So that it's been the state which has been the kind of site of democratic struggle and the question is really how to combine the struggles over the state with the struggles over over production over the economy 
Mm. And I think um, you do need both sides of it. And so we do need to rethink the state. We need to mutualize the state in a way, cooperativize the state. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's starting slowly with um, local authorities. I mean, Preston, what's happening in Preston is really interesting. Mm. Yes, um, the wealth building. Well, yeah. I think what we did at the GLC, I mean, I organized uh, or helped to coordinate um, a part of the GLC called the Popular Planning Unit, which was part of our industrial, we had an economic strategy and key to it was, was popular participation as well as a whole cooperative, support for cooperatives. And so that, yeah, so we tried there to change, transform the state, which is what they're, they're doing in Preston, mainly through um, procurement, or yeah. a, a new approach to procurement. <laughs> it, sort of import substitution. Kind of. Mm. Um, you talked about, um, power as transformative capacity rather than power as domination which i really liked yeah um, and um you know there, there, there's slowly the, the 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 beginnings of a sort of non-extractive infrastructure being built around food and energy and housing and it yeah. and we have <clears throat> several people working in those spheres coming to the meeting on march the 9th and i think what we're really trying to discover is how we can no, you're making me feel really, wish I could have a helicopter to get from Dorset to, but do have another <laughs> one. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have other meetings, yes. And, um, and we, could, we, could, we could make, red, we could use Red Pepper as a bit of a place where some of these ideas are exchanged. That would be a, that would be a great thing. Um, I'll, I will definitely contact you about that. Yeah. Um, I love the concept of ecologies of ownership. So there's many, many different ways to do things that aren't extractive. Mm. It's a bit of a challenge to sort of um, get them collaborating and get them networked. Mm. But uh, it's certainly true. Um, well, hopefully you'll, you'll develop some of those ideas in, um, on the night. I hope so. You also mentioned um, Mary Mellor's ideas. And I think they're also Positive Money's ideas about um, money and banks as public utilities. Yes. Uh, although, again, again, we're, we're, uh, there's, a, there, there's a group of us who are trying to build the UK mutual credit network. Um, and so we're going the more direct route rather than the state route with, mm. with mutual credit. Mm. Well, I think you need both probably. I mean, I didn't elaborate on Mary's ideas, but I think they're important. I think her books really needs to be discussed a bit more, a lot more. But I think she would she would see a need for both, you know, um, a facilitating um, bringing of the banks, treating them as public utilities, but in order then for them to support um, mutual credit and decentralised forms of of banking and credit and and credit and support for local industries, local businesses and co-ops and so on. Mm. You, um, one of the things that we're looking at in the meeting, hopefully, is um, the uh, Stafford Beer's viable system model. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, no, I, I was a, quite inspired by that. I was to, I was it, as a tool to sort of um, to, to assist with federation, because federation is yeah. notoriously difficult. And you actually mentioned the viable system model directly in your book. Um, so that no, you know, it was the, the yes. cybernetic system in Chile, yes. uh, pre-Pinochet. Pre yes. No, I mean, I don't... To, uh, such pity he's no longer with us because 
you know, I feel that he also understood the knowledge of you. At least he began to. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how he would de deal with tacit knowledge, but he at least built into his system an interactive process of gathering the knowledge and information. I mean, obviously, knowledge and information are different are different things, but gathering the information about production and so on from the local factories and then coordinating that, sharing that. So it was a kind of sharing notion of planning rather than a top-down notion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it is really important. I'm not, I'm not sure it would be good to work on that with you to see how that can be built, built on a bit more. Well, we've got a viable uh, system model specialist coming to the meeting, so we're going to... Uh, question in there and um, I mean you, maybe you could interview him as well yes no that would be good where's he from he's um, he's, he's based in the UK he's in India at the moment he's gone out to to, to uh, help some uh, some people set, set up things using the viable system model in India you know his name Trevor Hilda Trevor Hilda okay no no I would like to maybe well we can talk at the end about practically links to make Let's do that at the end of the interview. Actually, I'll, I interviewed Trevor Hilda a few weeks ago, so I'll send you a link to that to that interview so you can see what he has to say. Yeah. Um, you also talked about people finding the rhythms that suit them without have to, having to go to hundreds of meetings if we, yeah. if we start to federate and, co and collaborate. And I, I read um, Murray Bookchin's ideas about libertarian municipalism, yeah. and I read Michael Albert's Paracon, yeah. Know about that one, and uh, that's exactly the problem I found with those two ideas. It was like, wow, most people are not going to want to go to this number of meetings. No, that's, no, that's I, I read Paracon and felt the same. I didn't feel it was organic enough. Yeah. I don't. Mori Butchkin, I haven't. I've skimmed, but I haven't read enough to understand his his idea of how the inner, how the working of a system would be. I mean, I suppose my idea, which I think the knowledge thing is crucial here, because what goes on at meetings, or at least what's the theory? The theory is that meetings are about sharing information about decision-making. But, I mean, a lot of that can happen in practice, you know, as, as you actually produce. Yeah. A so in the early days of my thinking on this, I went to a, a, an institution produced by the women's movement in in Stockholm, it was a, a women's folk high school. So it was a, an adult school, a school for, <clears throat> for adult women. <clears throat> and it was created by the women's movement there. So it was based on their ethics of, of democracy and participation. And so my, my aim was to see this participatory democracy in practice. And it wasn't, it wasn't just about meetings, it was about flows of knowledge and relationship built into how the school was managed, how um, how teachers shared knowledge informally, how classes were run. So it didn't it didn't see democracy as sort of separate from the process of production, if you like, the process of, of actually delivering a service. And I think similarly, in a way, cooperative production isn't about meetings, it's about ways of organizing work. You know, if you look at SUMA or, or a really good cooperative like that, I'm sure you'd find that the, the participation is in the process. It's not about meetings. I mean, there'll be meetings, but 
it won't it won't be simply endlessly about meetings it'll be yeah. how how the work is organized how how the practical knowledge is shared and also i mean i don't know much about liquid democracy but i, I do understand the concept of uh, uh giving your vote to yeah. somebody who you know knows more about that subject than you yeah, and yeah. you and you know and trust them so therefore account yeah and you can and you can switch if they do start to do something that you don't like yeah um yeah. I, I do like that uh, idea rather than having everybody going to constant meetings oh definitely yeah. is that is that where's that set out is that ba bauman uh no i don't know i was just just um a colleague was talking to me about liquid dem democracy just recently i don't know much about it at all but I'm, i definitely want to look into it yeah yeah yes no um, no no Good. No, you've given me a reading list already. <laughs> <laughs> you and you mean, um, so, and you also mentioned not having a blueprint for the new system, yeah. which I thought was an absolutely essential concept. I mean, it's just we're just talking about federating non-extractive units to see what emerges. Mm. We, yeah. We're not we're not trying to impose a, a blueprint. No, no, you need, you need experiment. Then you need yeah. context for reflection on the experiment. Yeah, yeah. And I, I loved your idea of propaganda of practice as well. Oh, right, yes. Contributing to political change. In other words, don't lecture people, um, just do things and show other people that they work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no, I really believe that. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 and just finally, I think I'd like to talk about uh, the likelihood of a party being elected anywhere in the West, really, uh, that would support these this kind of federation and and actually how long they'd last in power in a corporate dominated world. If they, if they refuse to roll out the red carpet for the corporate sector, um, how long would they actually last? I'm sort of, I'm sort of skeptical about the parliament parliamentary route to change, although obviously I'd love to that to happen and I'd love any help from that direction, but I'm not sort of holding my breath. No, no, I mean, I, I share that sort of skepticism and anxiety, but I suppose the key thing is what we create. I mean, the corporations only have power because they have a monopoly on on material production. Yeah. But if if, if cooperatives and mutual organisations are producing food, producing the, the necessities of life, then corporations won't have that power. So in a way, we have to create that material base for a different kind of government but also different kind of state so that state that government can almost when it gets elected instead of being just up against the corporations it's also um resting on an emerging alternative so that the end result of a, of a strategy in which we put emphasis on creating material alternatives now means that when a, a left government or a it's simply up against corporate power, but it's resting on or is kind of nourished by um, this emerging alternative. So that led me, just, as I thought, to think of a kind of maybe rather corny natural analogy of, you know, where you have the, the butterfly emerging from the chrysalis. So in a way, not a, a mutualist, party or government would do would be to like open the or sort of facilitate be the mid the equivalent of the butterfly midwife to push off the sort of 
empty structures of corporate power yeah, so yeah, that yeah, yeah. could emerge. I mean, it's not as simple as that or as organic, but... But it's a nice vision. I think um, off, often the people I'm talking to, that often the state seems to be blocking the growth of the non-extractive sector rather than helping it. I mean, um, I used to be on the board of the Ecological Land Corp and the planning system is just a thorn in their side. Um, you know, the, the, the community energy, the license to, be, uh, to, to, to provide electricity to your local members is the same license as uh, E.ON or, or, or any sort of giant electricity supplier and which, which local community energy schemes can't afford. So they have to sell their electricity to the national grid for 4p a unit, and then the local members have to buy it back for 16, 17p a unit, which is yeah. just... And also, um, um, Duncan at, uh, the, at the New Economics Foundation is trying to build an alternative to Uber, a platform cooperative alternative to Uber. And the, the license to be a platform provider of taxi services went in London went for overnight from two and a half thousand pounds to two and a half million pounds. Wow. So it pushed him out of London and now he's trying to do it in Brighton. So everywhere you look, the state is sort of not helping. It's, it's, it's yeah, no, drawing... no, that's like you need to, you need to take over the state to re, <laughs> re, reorient it. And you need yeah. to specify in advance what you think needs to change. Yeah. Because I don't think it's, I don't think it's the regulators. I think the regulators often don't understand. They get, to, they get to listen to corporate lobbyists, they get to hear the corporate arguments, but they don't get to hear our arguments. And when they do, they're quite open to them. Yes, no, exactly. No, no, I think we'd have a lot of allies. So that's yeah. what we have to do if we think there is a chance of a different kind of government. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think we have a lot of allies in politics, with, uh, in the regulators and in the general public. You know, I talk to all sorts of people. I talk to bankers who completely agree with me. They say, yes, that's the kind of, that's the kind of economy I'd, lo I'd love to see. Yeah. And I know how evil it is because I work in the city. Yeah. And I, I, have to, I have to have earn that kind of money to be able to pay my mortgage, to, to be able to live yeah. in London. It's just a vicious circle. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. No, 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 we must talk about how we break that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.